Hey, Deserving Listeners. Today's episode is a presentation of an interview that I had with an author of a book called Stressed in the U.S. The author's name is Meg Van Dusen, and we are going to talk about the tips that she has about how to reduce stress in very practical ways for people who live in the United States and maybe other societies as well. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Let's get to that interview right now. So, Meg, please introduce yourself to the podcast, please. Yeah, my name is Meg Van Dusen. I'm a clinical psychologist here in Seattle, and I just wrote a book called Stressed in the U.S., 12 Tools to Tackle Anxiety, Loneliness, Tech Addiction, and More. And I have been in private practice for close to 25 years now, and I wrote the book because what I started noticing in my practice um, about mm, a little more than a decade ago is that stress seemed to be um, not only increasing among my patients, but the focus of it seemed to be changing. Uh, and then within the last four years, um, the increase in stress among people, not just with my patients, but with people in general, you know, that I know, um, uh, seemed to dramatically increase. And so I really started diving into the research and um, really started looking at um, what seemed to me to be some really uh, powerful statistics um, that there seemed to be an increase in stress among Americans and an increase in loneliness among Americans, as well as increases in anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts. Um, I started looking at what was happening with our connections with each other, and I really began to think hard about the idea that um, our connections with each other, we're actually suffering, even though it's one of the things that helps us be resilient to stress. So it seemed to me that, you know, we're living in a fairly unique time, that there have been a lot of um, cultural and um, uh, national events that have occurred since the year 2000 that have affected our stress levels. Um, and that we're also living in a time where perhaps the thing that makes us most resilient to stress is, which is our connections with each other is actually suffering. Um, so that's what I'm here to talk about today. Yeah, it's music to my ears. I am frequently ranting in on a soapbox about how our current society has in, you know, Seattle and other societies like Seattle are such that we are more disconnected than ever, we're more isolated than ever, we're more lonely than ever, and that can lead to a lot of hidden um, causes for depression, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, all sorts of issues. Right. What's one of the tips that you have for us? Well, there's so much, I think, to look at with regard to why. Why is it that we're so stressed these days? And there are a lot of factors. Um, so, I mean, the tips are related to what the factors are that might be influencing any particular person's life. So I think one of the common um, 
experiences that people have these days is information overload. <laughs> you know, um, I think with technology, um, we've got news at our fingertips. Um, we can be reached in a multitude of ways. Um, you know, workplaces uh, expect us to get things done more quickly or efficiently because we can with tech. Um, we're reached, you know, any time of the day or night. Um, and so the expectations to respond to an email or a text uh, are higher. And it leaves people really with a feeling of being constantly on and always waiting for what the next thing is going to be. Even, you know, the, the ring, ding, buzz of the phone has shown to elicit a stress response, um, physiological stress response in the body is kind of alerting the the system that something's about to happen, right? right. Um, and so when we are being constantly bombarded with this kind of information streaming and this kind of contact, um, specifically in the in these um, you know te- technological ways, um, then we're really in a, a chronic state of hypervigilance um, and it makes it really hard for us to calm our nerves. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is that, you know, first of all, tech is here to stay uh, and, and it's not that it shouldn't. There are a lot of great things about technology, a lot of great things about smartphones. Um, but, as is the case with many inventions, I think we as Americans tend to get very, very excited about things and don't look at the dark side. And so we are now left with having to be very intentional about sending, setting our own boundaries, you know, around our accessibility, around how much news we ingest, around um, how much our smartphones are, are on our bodies or, you know, um, next to our beds, uh, how much blue light we're exposed to. We have to be intentional about that. And so I talk about place boundaries, talk about time boundaries um, with regard to tech um, as one place to intervene on the phenomenon of in- information overload. And so what I mean about by place boundaries or time boundaries is that, you know, because, you know, the, the, the smartphone has really become an appendage and, you know, we have to kind of pause. We have to stop. We have to think, wait a second, I actually can separate myself from this device right now. I can put it in another room. I could turn it off entirely so it's not ringing, dinging, buzzing, what whatnot. Um, in order to give myself a break from that constant bombardment. And I think having some sort of system, you know, is helpful, if at all possible, where perhaps you do that for, you know, a few hours a day um, at a particular time, or perhaps you decide that you're going to turn off all technology at 7 o'clock in the evening for the night period. Or you, perhaps you just put a tagline on your email that says you only check email from 9 to 5. You know, whatever it is, setting those kinds of boundaries um, around technology, which is the vehicle for which we get so much of our information these days, um, can, can be helpful. That's one tool. Yeah, I find that it, it's a complicated thing because I'm guessing a lot of people listening right now are like, 
yeah, okay, you know, I've heard that before. Um, and, okay, you know, it's probably good advice. Like, I should exercise more, drink more water, um, lower my cholesterol. You know, there's a lot of things that people are bombarded with in terms of right. advice advice that they can get on board with and say, yeah. But then they just walk away and they don't really change. And so I, th- I think part of it is... Uh, and I'm guessing in your work with your clients is in the nuance as it is with people that I work with in my clinical practice is that it's not necessarily – it's about like evaluating those things that are actually causing the stress. Like one thing that you'll often hear is you know, don't check your phone when you first wake up. Well, I do that actually. <laughs> I check my phone when I first wake up. It's the first thing I do. Um, not because I'm like – desperately wanting to know what's happening on social media. I'm actually, I wake up and I look at my email and I just go through it and I just delete a bunch of emails that I don't want to read. And I'm, I'm really kind of slow to wake up. And so it's actually kind of a good thing to do because it doesn't take much brain, brain power for me to do. And my perception, and I could be wrong, obviously, but my perception is that that activity doesn't actually raise my stress level. It actually makes me feel better. I kind of, I wake up, with mm-hmm. a slight bit of worry about yeah. like, oh God, what's in my email account? Right, and I look right. at it and I and so I do it. So I think it comes down to looking at everyone's individual lives and trying to be more critical or objective, so to so to speak, about those things to you that stress you out. Like for someone right. uh, looking at Facebook, like for me, looking at Facebook is non stressful because I have muted a bunch of people who post political things. Um, so my Facebook feed is just pictures of kids and cats and dogs and relatives and mm-hmm. sunsets and a beer by the pool and, uh, you know, a, a nice hamburger and a, a, you know, a funny gif or something. That's all that's on my Facebook. But if your Facebook out there is filled with your uncle's political rants and your aunt's, uh, you know, I don't know rants about her personal life that are stressing you out, then, you know, it's a different experience. And so I think we all just have to, you know, figure out where that is and also, you know, just really value our own sanity about this, you know, to to just take it for granted. Like, well, you know, it's just life now. Like a big thing that I work with with people in my clinical practice in Seattle, because it's very prevalent, I think perhaps more so than anywhere else in the world or at least tied for other places in the world is this – attitude and culture in corporations around bosses being able to contact their employees 24-7. And I know this isn't an unknown phenomenon, but in Seattle, it's just completely taken as a given. And uh, and it's not just that notion, but it's a whole culture of if you want to move up in the ranks, which is obviously what you need to be doing, um, you need to be self-sacrificial. You need to be a team player and you need to be on the ball and you need to be responsive and you can't, you know, uh, not respond and you can't not be on the ball. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember a time when my dad went to work and he came home and he, his bosses never contact, they never called him. Right. Right. Uh, He, he, he got into his truck at the end of a workday at Boeing and Renton and drove home to Issaquah and, we had dinner at five thirty every day around the table, and and uh, you know he he was done. Um, right, it wasn't like he wasn't stressed out, <laughs> but he wasn't additionally stressed out by this other stuff. And I think 
uh, and I get into these long rants with my clients of just of just being, you know, I just sound like a communist where I'm just like, you know, labor has to stand <laughs> up against, you know, the the proletariat, you know, it's or true, bourgeois yeah. or whatever. Right, and right, right. We we, we have to um, push back, and if we don't, as a group or at least individually, uh, we're all going to be, uh, you know, in a fetal position, uh, drinking ourselves to sleep every night to cope and alone and divorced and sad and unhealthy and. Um, you know, it, it's real. And, and you yeah. as a Seattle practitioner, I'm guessing, have run into the same thing. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think you make a lot of good points there. And one of the points that I, wa- I really want to highlight is what you said about what you do with your phone in checking email in the morning and how it actually reduces your stress and how Facebook actually um, is not stress-inducing for you at least. And I think the reason that is, is because you're placing what I would call content boundaries, right? You're actually getting rid of a bunch of content, both in the email and um, in on your Facebook feed, that might otherwise stress you out. And so that's just another way to set a boundary. It doesn't have to be put your phone away, you know, for 18 hours. Um, it can just be by the way you're doing it. And it's a, it's a... It's a very good point, but I do think we have to be intentional about it. We do have to think about how is this device, you know, in particular with the smartphone, stressing us out. We have to actually pause long enough to think about it and and observe what's happening with ourselves in order to determine, okay, what exactly about it is stressing me out and how can I intervene and what kind of boundaries that going to look like. I think the other – go ahead. Uh, oh, go ahead, please. Well, I was going to go into your other your other spiel about work, but if you had yeah. something to say about that. No, no, please, please. Oh, well, you know, I, you're absolutely right with regard to work and um, and the fact that we are no longer living in the style of the 1940s or even the 1970s. I mean, you know, this is um, a 24-7 um, work culture and um, – yeah, the, you know, corporations in particular, and we've got a lot of those here in Seattle, um, you know, really do expect a lot of accessibility and availability of their employees. We are also um, the country that really does not have to give employees vacation time. And, you know, while most companies do, it is extraordinarily minimal compared to other countries around the world. Um, you know, we are, you know, the Japanese are, have always, you know, so, sort of gotten the um, bad reputation of being, you know, workaholics, and yet they take more vacation time than we do. So, you know, we are really um, putting a high, high value on professional achievement or work achievement as um, some sort of means to being happy or okay or less stressed. And, you know, the research actually points to the fact that that is not what makes us happy. And so I think part of that, you know, looking at American culture does have to do with the more is better mentality. There has always been kind of that mentality in the U.S. You know, more is better. And now it's really focused on achievement. Another variable was, I think, the economic crisis that we went through, um, you know, uh, that really 
freaks people out that, you know, we're vulnerable to this kind of, you know, dramatic recession. Um, and, and so, you know, people are feeling insecure and are feeling threatened that if they don't work like a dog, that they'll be replaced. So there are a lot of cultural variables, I think, that are affecting this crazy work, work culture that we live in. But I 100% agree with you. It's got to start somewhere. And that as employees, um, you know, it is important to band together. It is important to go to management and talk about, you know, vacation time and the importance of it. I mean, you know, there are many studies that have shown that the more um, people have what you and I would probably deem, you know, normal work hours um, or more vacation time, the more productive they are. So it really is a win-win situation both for the company and for the employee to reduce work hours, reduce workload, increase vacation time. And yet, yeah, I think we are going to have to kind of speak out much more than we have been. Yeah, and I find that it's a cultural, as you're saying, thing as well. It's not when I I have clients where we'll tar- I'll start targeting this as a as an issue for them to improve and change, and they're convinced, but they have a lot of resistances against it. And it's so it's you know if it was just as simple as me saying try to work less or try to push back on your boss less, it, it then they'd be like, oh okay. But usually there's just a ton of propaganda that they've ingested and taken for granted that you were uh, referencing that uh, resists the effort um, that they have to actually better their lives. And uh, that's, it's, it's a, a deprogramming, a reeducation, if you will, of people to emerge out of uh, you know, potentially 45 years of being propagandized to about a particular way of living and particular um, uh, values to have. I mean, you know, uh, one thing that I think about that just pops in my mind is like, say you're, you work at Microsoft in, in Seattle and you are 45 and um, you're heading into, you're, you're heading into upper management or something and instead of buying yet a bigger house and a nicer car, you actually buy a crappier house, if you will, <laughs> like a smaller house or an older house or right. a house in not the best neighborhood or something. And you, uh, you, know, you do that instead of doing the other direction. That would look really, really weird to people. People would be like, well, did something happen? Are you, are you sick? Uh, you know, are you... You know, are, are you is, are you struggling with money? Are you a gambling addict? Like there would be so many questions. But if you did the other direction, then it's oh yeah, of course, great, good for you. you what a beautiful, gigantic five thousand square foot Absolutely. home that, that you don't mm-hmm. need, and five cars mm-hmm. that you don't need, and ten million gadgets that you don't need. I mean, I I'm a little bit on that spectrum, by the way, but um, uh, not in the house region, but in the gadgets, but. Um, so, you know, I'm not saying I'm not part of that, but uh, it's it's part of just this general understanding of just like what is valued in life instead of, as you say, connections, instead of saying, you know, OK, I've, I've reached a point in my career where I can take a little, you know, I can slow down at work now a little bit. Um, the kids are getting older or something, and I'm going to focus on connections. I'm going to focus on relationships 
I'm going to focus on my marriage. I'm going to focus on my kids. I'm going to focus on my parents and my siblings and my friends. And I'm just going to go to tea with people. And um, I'm going to go for hikes with people. And I'm going to, you know, reach out to that old friend. Like um, that and technology can facilitate that, right? <laughs> you know, because we have Facebook where we can actually reach all these people. Um, well, so let me ask you, Meg, yeah. when yeah. Uh, when people resist, because, you know, you, you, you've written this yeah. book. Right. And you, you talk with your clients and you also have been on other podcasts and radio shows, I'm guessing. And, you know, I'm guessing people resist a little bit. You know, they're just like, well, I can't, you know, you don't understand mm-hmm. my life. It, mm-hmm. It's it's wall to wall. I got to do mm-hmm. the kids and the work and, the, you know, mm-hmm. there's no time. And you're asking me to what? Like, come on. What do you say to them? Well, I really want to assess at that point, what are they afraid of? Because what that tells me is that they're feeling threatened. And this is why they're engaging in behaviors that are only perpetuating their stress. So when you're threatened, you feel stressed. But then, unfortunately, what people often do is they respond to the stress in a, in a behavioral way that only invites more stress, <laughs> you know, which is, oh, my God, I might get fired. Okay, I'm going to work 80 hours a week. Now I'm, you know, doubly stressed. And so I really try to hone in on what that individual's particular fears are. What are they particularly afraid of? I also try to assess, you know, what is the nature of their attachment style? Now, this is out of Bowlby's theory on attachment um, that determines, you know, uh, essentially our well-being. Uh, so how confident we are, how, um, uh, you know, confident we feel and how, um, you know, at ease or, or happy we are based on how securely attached we feel to other human beings. And so I try to assess that and I try to determine, you know, is this person securely attached or are they suffering from more of an anxious attachment or avoidant attachment that's fueling this workaholic behavior um, that's perpetuating this fear. And so I really work um, with helping the person try to increase what, you know, Bowlby and Ainsworth and other attachment theorists have called secure attachment. Because you can change your attachment style. You're not stuck with it. Um, and when you increase a sense of internal safety, you know, a sense of feeling safe, um, in your own personal world and in, you know, your larger uh, community and work life, uh, then you're going to engage less in these more reactive, um, anxiety-driven, or even avoidant types of behaviors that end up perpetuating the stress. Yeah, music to my ears as well and to the listeners. Uh, I, uh, this earlier this year, did... I think a 11 or 14 hour series on attachment theory. (laughs) And so, uh, and I had always enjoyed attachment theory throughout my career, but this podcast gave me a chance to spend, I don't know, about six months just reading everything I possibly could and talking to everyone I possibly could. And, you know, really um, got a, a pretty deep picture of attachment theory and, all of all of its implications, and was quite convinced that it's it should be the the primary um, theory for everyone, regardless of what field they're in. <laughs> you know, even if it's 
in business, you know, uh, yeah, in life and marriage and mm-hmm. parenting and mm-hmm. in right. government. And mm-hmm. um, so, uh, right. you know, all the listeners are, are, you know, probably definitely on board with what you're saying there. And I'm just thinking about people I know who I think are pretty stressed out and whom I've assessed as being less securely attached in general um, and and have less secure attach, uh, insecure, more insecure attachment styles. And you're right mm-hmm. that they will uh, dive into work as a way of avoiding what's happening at home. And so if they could establish more secure attachments at home and heal from the attachment injuries of the past, then they'd have less reason to turn to their phones, turn to the news, uh, perpetuate anger and resentment and distancing and, um, you know, more likely to trust other people and to enjoy their lives and to enjoy themselves and to focus on that. You know, that's the difference between, if I, if I might, that's the difference between a pop, a pop writer writing about how to reduce stress and a clinician's book about how to reduce stress, right? Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. You know, and I think that for people that don't understand really what attachment theory is, I think it's important to talk about it from, you know, the origins of it in that it was a theory that really developed over time um, by British psychoanalyst John Bowlby and his successors, uh, Mary Ainsworth and Mary Main and others, who did numerous uh, infant caregiver studies, toddler caregiver studies as well, that determined that it was the attunement of the caregiver, the the primary caregiver, usually the mother or father, uh, to that baby that helped create in the baby a sense of a security. And what that meant, at least here in the U.S., was that the baby then felt, you know, more competent or confident about exploring their environment and, you know, felt safe, generally speaking, because they felt understood, they felt responded to in a fairly consistent way. Um, If the caregiver was misattuned or, or, you know, not able for whatever reason to respond because they're preoccupied with themselves or because they themselves are, you know, grappling with an anxiety disorder or whatnot, Um, then you've got variations on insecure attachment. And so how that translates to the adult life is that if you've developed an insecure attachment in childhood, um, then the way you relate to other people, whether it be your boss or your partner or your friends, um, is going to be from that attachment style, is going to be likely from that either insecure, um, anxious attachment or avoidant attachment, or ambivalent attachment. And, um, and that can make life difficult. Um, but the good news is you can t- change your attachment style. Therapy is one way, you know, it's one arena um, in which you can kind of, when you say, I think you said earlier, kind of do have a... Uh, I remember your exact word, but kind of a do-over internally of your, you know, mindset. Um, and and one way to do that is through therapy. But there, the other thing that's astounding to me, and I think that is um, 
you know, really helpful for so many people because it's so accessible is mindfulness meditation has shown to increase um, secure attachment within the self. So without even another human being present, which sounds odd, it helps increase the sense of safety and security within the self. Why? Because mindfulness meditation practices um, non-judgment, um, practices self-compassion, and these are things that are akin to parental attunement, um, the kind of parental attunement that um, fosters secure attachment in children. Can you explain that a little bit more in terms of your understanding of it and how you actually do it with clients? So with mindfulness meditation, um, what you're doing is you are bringing your attention to the present moment. Um, so we tend often to ruminate about things we did or said in the past, worry about the future, what's going to happen tomorrow, is my boss going to be mad at me, you know, these kinds of things. And we're, we're often very rarely in the present. So mindfulness, um, and I guide clients, um, I'm, I'm helping them bring their attention to the present moment. I usually have people close their eyes just so they're not visually distract, distracted. Um, and, and something simple like bringing your attention to your breathing, right? Because that's happening in the moment. Um, just observing it, just being aware of the sensations, what it feels like as the air moves in and out of the nostrils. This is an example of mindful attention. Um, when a person gets distracted, and of course they will by some worry or making a list in their mind about what they have to do later that day or whatever it is, I just have them note the distraction. Usually I have them name the distraction, such as list making or worrying or whatnot. And then just gently bring their mind back to following the breath again. So that they're not judgmental about the fact that they got distracted. It's okay. It's normal. Um, they're compassionate um, to the fact that, oh, you got distracted. Let's nudge you back to the focusing on the breath. And when you're doing that, what research is showing when you're doing that over and over again, two things are happening. Um, you know, one, you're retraining the brain. So this whole idea of neuroplasticity where we can actually change our brains more than we realized um, to be more able to be in the present moment. And two, when you're focused on a task like following the breath in the present moment, you're, um, the part of the brain uh, that actually tends to or is responsible for the rumination I described earlier, the worrying, the, you know, um, going over and over things about what you could have done differently, um, the list making, that part of the brain actually quiets when you're meditating or when you're being mindful because you're engaging your prefrontal cortex in a task and you're disengaging what's called the default mode network, which is the part of the brain that tends to ruminate and particularly tends to ruminate negatively on the story. You know, like, um, you know, why am I so fat? Why do I not have a partner? These kinds of things. Yeah, that was well said. I tend to see it um, in uh, a way in which, or I've learned to see it in a certain way, because I've been studying meditation. I've been exposed to it since the beginning of my career over 20 years ago. And my 
understanding of it has evolved over time in terms of how it works for me it, in that – I mean I guess just another way of putting the way you're saying it is that when we live habitually and particularly when we're traumatized or bullied or made to feel insecure and are uh, – and it's adaptive to ruminate to some extent on the future and the past. Mm-hmm. It, keeps us, it keeps us out of trouble. Maybe it keeps us from being abused or mm-hmm. it keeps us you know, surviving – and right. then we emerge into life where we don't need that anymore. And we still have that tendency. And even though we can try to say to ourselves, stay in the moment and you know, be, in the, be in the present moment, that's, that can be almost impossible if your brain is used to a certain way of acting. It's like trying to train yourself to write with your other hand mm-hmm. or trying to uh you know if you're a baseball player trying to bat from the other side of the plate or something it's it's a very strange thing to do but over time if you just keep repeating it your brain will eventually adjust i mean there are people who um, have lost the use of their arms and they can paint with their feet mm-hmm. when they first started doing that they it was probably not so great but over time your brain just learns and the plasticity of the brain and and this habitual and there's also the, you know the the concept of plasticity is well understood but also the concept of um is it long-term potentiation i think it's called or something i can't remember the, mm-hmm. the, the, mm-hmm. the frame mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. like when you keep when it, things that fire together wire together, I think the phrase exactly. goes. Right. And uh, if you, the way the brain operates, it's it's such that if you, if if the more you think about the past and the future, the more your brain wires itself actually to uh, more easily do that again. You're, it's it's like a groove on a table. You know, things just kind of fall into that groove. Exactly. And, and when you're trying to work out a new groove, it's it's going to want to go back to the old groove. And, and But over time, if you keep working kind of consciously on staying in the moment, being present, focusing on your breathing, not being distracted by past thoughts or future thoughts or something, um, the old groove will eventually fade and, and this new groove will, will, will begin. And through that, uh, you don't have to try anymore. You're through meditation um, and mindfulness uh, over time, it, it not only does the mindfulness practice exercise go more easily for you uh, for a number of reasons. One, you just don't judge yourself for um, not doing it right, that kind of thing. You just sort of take it easy. But the other thing is that it general, generalizes to the rest of your life. You know, you're just mindlessly driving down the road and you're just daydreaming about, about something. And if your brain has this new groove of being in the moment and not focusing on things in the past, negative things in the past, worrisome things in the future, then um, you don't have to try anymore and you just have a lot less stress in your life. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think for people who, for whatever reason, shy away from the word meditation or feel, once again, the common complaint is that I don't have time for that, um, that, you know, it doesn't have to be some 20-minute thing, and it doesn't even have to be meditating. Um, there are ways to be mindful, and there are ways to bring your mind to the present moment um, that can still achieve that aim. I think meditation, uh, I mean, the studies show that the more you meditate, um, the bigger the changes are. But even being in nature, for example, like if you said to yourself, here's another boundary, um, okay, instead of eating lunch at my desk, 
every day. I'm going to actually go outside. And even if I'm in the middle of downtown with, you know, a zillion buildings, I'm going to find some, something in the natural environment to um, set my eyes on, even if it's the sky or a bird on a branch or whatnot. But being in nature um, not only reduces cortisol, the stress hormone, um, and reduces inflama- inflammatory cytokines in the, in the body, but it also does the same thing that meditation does. It quiets that default mode network. Um, uh, and, and why it seems like the mechanism there is this idea of awe that we kind of wake up to, oh, wow, isn't that incredible? Like, look how vast the sky is. Because we're not noticing it much. You know, we don't typically look at it. We don't typically take the time to just stare up at the sky. And so sometimes just doing things like that for people who feel daunted by the, you know, idea of having to sit and meditate every day um, can be kind of a, an introduction anyway to practicing mindfulness. Yeah, things that come to mind in terms of practical tips are, okay, your, your life is busy. You're scrambling from one thing to the other. Uh, you have younger kids. Maybe trying to engineer playtime with your kids to be outside um, at the park or something. Right. Um, taking your dog for a walk, um, for a longer walk or something, instead of just letting your dog out for a little bit of time. Um, right. Uh, on the weekends, planning things around uh, these sorts of activities, connection, nature, uh, things that aren't going to be stressful. You know, one of the things that I'll hear from people professionally and personally, and I, I guess even in, in for me myself, is like, okay, this weekend I'm going to get all these things done. I'm going to get chores done. I'm going to be productive because that's what a good American is like. <laughs> that's true. And instead <laughs> of saying, uh, okay, how about I just take Saturday and do something very relaxing (laughs) like uh, and and yeah okay maybe the lawn will go a little will grow a little longer this week maybe uh you know my email box will get a little bloated maybe the house will be a little dirtier maybe the the dog poop in the backyard will get a little bit more numerous um but uh I, i need this now and I and I, if I don't, I'm gonna break. <laughs> and plus, I deserve it. You know, look how hard I work. I mean, that's the thing that I uh, yeah. really just get so um, upset about when people beat themselves up about being lazy or not getting enough done. And I'm and I'm looking at their life, and I'm like, you work 55 hours a week, you commute 10, 15 hours a week. Your kids are all fed and sheltered and going to school and relatively happy and doing well enough and are in, you know, at least a couple activities. Um, Where are you lazy? (laughs) You know, and they're they're like, well, but you understand, like, I got this project in the garage or there's this deadline at work or I I haven't even gotten to my taxes yet. And and I'm like, oh, my God, like, what have we done to ourselves as a society, you know? And and the the thing that I will always uh, uh, also give tips for um, is if you're not at a job where you can 
get some of your personal life in order, you know, a couple hours out of the day, then you're not living the American dream. <laughs> you That's know, very like, true. Uh, like there are people who have, I've always kind of enjoyed jobs like that. I, I've always had jobs where if I wanted to, I could sort of, um, uh, chill out and, or, or run an errand, a personal errand in the middle of the day or something. And, and I find that, you know, some people, it's like they're working like a dog from, you know, eight to seven and, and yeah. there's no break for even lunch or something. And I'm like, how did that happen? You know, that just seems so unfair. And, and they're just like, well, you know, that's everyone around me is doing that. And, and they just get used to it. They think, well, that's just life. And I just think people uh, can't, I mean, it's hard, of course, it's hard to know what to do. And I mean, I think part of it, while I'm just rambling, is that when people start their career uh, trajectory in their early 20s or something, is to value this, you know, they should have a class in career development of just like, okay, how are you going to have balance in your life? Does the career you're going into even have balance? <laughs> you know, what's this, what does the research say about the actual well-being of people in this profession? Um, or, and or do you need to start advocating for, for greater labor laws in this profession from the beginning or something? Because that's not what people are focusing on. What they're focusing on is money and and also meaning right uh which is good to think about like oh is this job going to be meaningful to me but another part of it is like is this is this career going to crush you right i mean and again i think jane twenge's research out of uh, san diego state you know showed that you know in the millennial generation um extrinsic goals are far more important than intrinsic goals and so even telling people to do something relaxing can be like speaking a foreign language um, because they're, as we talked about before, their brain doesn't know how to do that. Their brain feels like if they sit, they're wasting time. They're not being productive. They're not getting to, you know, they're not achieving. And that's the danger. That's a, that's a huge danger that we're living with. Um, and so again, finding, kind of this, these little pauses and exposures to, wow, what's happening in my body right now? What emotion might I be feeling at the moment? That's just a pause. It's just a minute of checking in, attuning to the self. Or, hey, well, let me stop um, as I'm running for the bus. Maybe I'll miss the bus because look what's happening over there. You know, there's, you know, this beautiful um, flock of geese Um and being able to actually pause long enough to take in the things that are stress reducing can help to, you know, at least make that quarter turn so that we're not living in this merry-go-round or, you know, treadmill of life where Rollo May, and I'm going to probably botch his quote, but essentially said, you know, it's an old habit of Americans to run faster when they've lost their way. And I think we have lost our way in many ways. And that's why everybody is running around like nuts. <laughs> and we do need to, to just at least at least try to get ourselves to pause. That's a start. Yeah, I like that you're emphasizing that, that we can reparent ourselves in some ways. Yeah. We can... Uh, give ourselves the attunement that we all need and deserve at any age, 
let alone for people who weren't given enough of it growing up right. by paying attention to what's happening. You know, that's what attunement is, is you, you know, you're, you're noticing uh, your child's uh, state and you're responsive to it in a empathic and appropriate way. And as adults, we can parent ourselves in a lot of ways. We can, okay, what's going on with me? How am I feeling right now? Um, what what do I need right now? And and who am I? You know, right? Uh, right. What am I? Uh, just that simple paying attention is so powerful for mm-hmm. the child, and and so so powerful to us now, um, and that. Uh, that I hope that that inspires the listeners to do that for themselves and and to trust that even though it doesn't necessarily provide any answers, you know, you could attune to yourself and, and notice yourself and go like, oh, I, I think I'm really scared right now, or I think I'm really sad, or I think I'm really confused, or I think I'm really stressed out, or I think I'm really, um, I, I, there's a certain malaise about my mood right now. I'm just in a bad mood lately. The attunement doesn't uh, uh, derive necessarily solutions for it to be a solution, I guess. You know, when when Correct. we when we pay attention to our children and our child is, I don't know, gets bullied at school and comes home and is sad and about being bullied at school, uh, the first, you know, thing that, and the, sometimes the only thing that they need is for us to uh, be attuned to that and see that and be with them. It's like, oh, what happened? Oh, you know, and child's having their ups and downs and you're with them. And, uh, you know, maybe after that discussion, there's some kind of solution about how to address the bullying at school. You know, hopefully there is. But but in the moment, what you're really looking for is that someone just is paying attention to you and, and sees you and notices you and that you have the time for yourself to to feel your feelings. And, and obviously Which- having that. Sorry, go ahead. No, which creates a sense of safety, yeah. Yeah. So obviously, um, you know, getting that with other people is great, too. We should encourage people to do that, too, as I always do, uh, with a therapist, with their spouse, engineer those kinds of relationships, cultivate those kinds of mutual um, attunement with people around you. But also, just on a minute-to-minute basis for yourself, just that that can be an attachment um, healing moment to, to mm-hmm. be attuned to yourself, to notice who you are. Uh, mm-hmm. And that can be sometimes all you need as a solution. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, Meg, it was great having you on the podcast. Uh, what is your book called? Yeah, thanks for having me, Kirk. It is Stressed in the U.S., 12 Tools to Tackle Anxiety, Loneliness, Tech Addiction, and More. You can get it easily on Amazon right now. Or my website at it's megvandusen.com. And where can people tweet you or social media you? Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Dr. Van Dusen, and that's probably the best way. Great. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Meg. It was, uh, I feel more relaxed after this. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah, it was great talking. Thanks, Kirk. <laughs> and everyone out there, please take care of yourself and attune to yourself and others because you and others deserve it. That's right.